Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yurika Cataldo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck about what to do next, you've come to the right place. Every week, I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journey. If you like this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Fred, founder of We The People Summit, a podcaster and teacher. Dr. Fred, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Yeah, I'm doing fine. As we were talking about bouncing and bouncing from meeting to meeting is sometime a little bit tricky. But overall, here I am with a smile <laughs> on my face, really realizing that everything I've done in my whole life has led me right here to this second to be with you, Yuri. So here we go. <laughs> Thank you. I, I greatly appreciate that. So I, I gave you a, a quick little intro, but um, you're, you have a, a very long bio. Uh, for my listeners who are less familiar with your work, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Wow. Right. So, you know, with you, uh, I saw that you're like in this group of, the, you know, the 40 under 40 and stuff. So I do have uh, it just by having the nature of having at least 24 years on you uh, since I've been 40, I get an opportunity to have a long bio. But even at 40 years old, I had a pretty long bio. And so who? let's see who I am. I um, It's how I run my podcast, by the way. The Welcome to Humanity podcast is sort of driven on the word, uh, who, who are you? Mm -hmm. And so this is a real opportunity to take a look at who am I today? Uh, so this We the People Summit is really absorbing my time these days. And uh, I have a Ukrainian wife. These are difficult times in Ukraine, of course. Mm -hmm. And we're really looking at how we can put together a fundraiser and, in fact, have already amassed 24 amazing speakers who are going to speak to the inspirational uh, aspect of becoming an influencer, people who are already so-called influencers with big, big downlines and you know, notoriety, well-known in the world, really letting us know that if you speak your true voice, if you really speak your authentic message and immediately you are an influencer. So my real newest brand, if you will, or the newest thing that I'm really running down with that I, I can go to my grave with, frankly, is something called true voice. So the true voice methodology I created, I also teach true voice podcasting, taking people from zero to the podcaster, as I find podcasting to be uh, if you know, sort of the exemplary, the quintessential way to get your message out into the world. So podcasting mm -hmm. and then being a podcast guest and a podcast teacher is part of who I am. And then I do some expert speaking as well. So they call it expert speaking, but I just speak my mind. You know, it's just like signature speeches or keynote speeches talking about the importance of true voice, talking about how now is the time. These are urgent, difficult, challenging times. And speaking true voice is really critical. Now, if you back up from that, Uri, here's what you get. You get Welcome to Humanity, which has been around for about five or six years now as an entity. And uh, that's on the heels of me being a psychiatrist for approximately 32 years. And even before that, being in the mental health field for 40 years. I arrived on the planet as a communicator. Like that day, I have been an, a communicator since the second I popped out. My two older brothers and my parents were waiting for me to bring some degree of semblance to a chaotic, uh, you know, uh, family that was in disarray. 
And I was expected to bring joy and communication effectively right that very second. So it's been a full-time job, you know, uh, no, no, no rest for the weary. Mm -hmm. And I've been a communicator and, and, you know, you might guess, uh, some do that. I was, uh, I was, uh, precocious as a child, let's say, you know, I was, uh, <laughs> I was someone who there's no elementary school teacher who, uh, ever forgot having Fred in their class. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, I was there, uh, learning how to speak and, and attempting to learn how to listen really just enchanted with communication more than anything over time what ended up happening is each and every time I grew into a new school, whether it be junior high, I was just hoping that junior high would finally teach me how to communicate because I was kind of ahead of the kids in my elementary school. Mm -hmm. Well, that didn't happen. Right. It's totally disappointing. Junior high is actually worse than elementary school. And I'm like, okay, that's why they call it junior high. Maybe I'll go to high school and they'll teach me there. But lo and behold, I went to high school. It wasn't any better there. And people were did not communicating very effectively then. So I thought, okay, that's why they made college. That's why, that's why they did it. So I did, you know, I see that you're wearing this MIT hat. I had a pretty prestigious uh, college that I was aiming at. And I went to the university of Michigan. I was there for a little ride and it, you know, it was even worse in high school in many ways, just being asked to regurgitate. And I finally just dropped out of school and went back another time, dropped out again. I'm two time college dropout. That's pretty important piece of this because I got a job as a, you know, my mom's like, yeah, it's okay that you dropped out, but now you got to work. You know, moms will be like that. They know mm -hmm. whatever. And, and so she got me an application and I began working as a childcare worker in a state hospital. Hmm. And there I really noticed that they were actually paying me to communicate and connect with other human beings. These being the kids who were four, six, eight years younger than me. And I loved that job. I did. It was an opportunity for, you know, wow, take home a paycheck just by communicating with folks and just by healing them through that communication. And in, in the same time being healed by that communication, I became a super huge fan at that point of communication and connection as a, as a source of all healing. But the thing I hated more than anything was the way that psychiatry was dealing with those kids. Uh, we would call the psychiatrist, you know, Johnny's up too late or Jimmy and Tommy got into a fight and uh, the psychiatrist would come by, take his weapon, this thing here that your fan, you know, your, your audience can't see this thing called an ink pen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a massive weapon in the hand of a doctor. And they would write an order to give these kids medicine and have to hold them down and inject them full of toxic medicine. And if they were, you know, if we put them out of their misery, maybe they'd be silent for 12 or 24 hours we would actually have to write that that was a success. Mm. Now, to me, that was the most barbaric, heinous thing I had ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't believe I was a part of it because I'd have to hold the kids down with, the, with my team. So I made it my business to go back to school one more time in order to bring communication effectively into the world of psychiatry. So here we go, 13 years later, through all the schooling and all the medical school and all the residency and the fellowships, there I was as a psychiatrist. And in the meantime, in the meantime, Prozac was introduced to the world in 1987. Now you're way too young to know about that because if you're under 40, you don't know what really happened in those years. And what, I guess, I guess you were what, five in 1987 or something like that. Um, the, the idea is that Prozac really altered the way we do mental health. What Prozac did was give the semblance, the illusion that if, there, if you were uncomfortable, there was something wrong with you. Mm. 
That's just so absurd and allows the world to deliver a very uncomfortable external events into our area and blame us for being uncomfortable, like blaming a log for burning in a fire. Mm -hmm. But Prozac was sort of given uh, a massive marketing effort to have it be that that was the drug that was going to, you know, bring happiness to everyone, despite what the hell is going on in the world. And uh, all of psychiatry got flipped on its ear and, and, you know, biological psychiatry was created and chemical imbalance became something that people actually believed in and communication became less and less important, more of a sideshow. Now I found myself all of a sudden forced to become a psychopharmacological expert at an international level when the whole reason that I went into the field in the first place was so that I wouldn't have to use psychopharmacology. Well, you can get that that created a fair amount of duplicity in your hero here. And, you know, the opportunity to, you know, every day when I wrote prescriptions and I wrote tens of thousands of them, Yuri, you know, my, my heart bled, I, my soul sacrificed. And I, uh, I, I went through it, you know, becoming kind of an expert about it, but really never truly believing in the positive effects of psychiatric medications. But what could I do? You know, people come in, they want their medicines. That's it. That's why they got referred to me. I'd have to, I could tell them a little bit like, Hey, uh, this isn't going to work. And then they just get pissed. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you here? If this isn't going to work. And I feel like saying, that's a really good question. I'm not sure why I'm here either. <laughs> Cause this isn't going to work. And I, I, you know, but if you really want it, we'll give it to you. And, and, you know, I had to toe that line for many, many years. Eventually, in about 2006, uh, some things happened, and I had an opportunity to alter the course of how I was doing mental health. And I began to take people off of medicine, began to take people then realizing that medicine wasn't the problem. The problem was, Yuri, that people really believed that there was something wrong with them if they didn't feel comfortable with life. Like if somehow they were feeling a depressed or anxious or nervous or fearful or had trouble sleeping or finishing tasks or funny thoughts, that that meant that there was something wrong with them. As if there's a group of people who don't have that going on. The truth is we all have that going on. Some of us admit it and some of us don't. And some of us blame others for their problem. You know, mm -hmm. So this was an opportunity for me to start looking at, well, people think there's something wrong with them. Everyone thinks there's something wrong with them. So it's entirely normal to think that there's something wrong with you because we all think there's something wrong with us, but that makes you nothing wrong with you when you think there's something wrong with you. Are you with me so far? You're, yep. Am I hanging with you? Oh, okay. 100% with you. 100% with right, you. All right, cool. Yeah. Because, because then I started realizing if I could let people know that maybe their diagnosis was just essentially a way to label or a way to relinquish responsibility for the things we do in our life that we aren't proud of. Mm -hmm. And every single day I make massive errors every single day. I, you know, I make errors with other people. Sometimes I hurt people. I don't like to admit that, but sometimes I even hurt people intentionally after all, I'm just a human. So I might hurt people or I might do things differently than I wish I would, or I might have bad outcomes. If I can sort of blame that on a diagnosis, that's very, that, that's, that's very attractive. In fact, Yuri, if you want to take responsibility for most of the rest of the mistakes that I'm going to make today, I would appreciate that, you know, because I don't really want responsibility for being the jerk that I'm about to be several times still left mm -hmm. for today or tomorrow or every day. Why? Because I'm a human and I don't like looking down that barrel at the fact that I make tons of mistakes and, and I'm really less than perfect in my interactions. So 
what I started to see is that when I chose my, you know, low risk patients to take off their medicine and take off their diagnoses, they got way better immediately. Like without the medicine and without the diagnosis, we began playing on a, on a level playing field. Mm-hmm. We began really looking at each other as just humans. And I began to see, look, I am not diminishing the misery of life. Far from it. I'm in fact emphasizing the pain and discomfort that life can offer. The awful pain and discomfort. Sometimes, the again, the, uh, the mm, terrible, even again, unspeakable discomfort that life can offer at times. I am not minimizing that we experience that. I'm only suggesting that experiencing that is in the whole, in the whole playground of what it means to be a human being. When we start doing that and you start, you know, you come into my office and you want to tell me a secret about this or that, or you want to, you know, confidentially let me know that you're feeling terrible about the way things are going in your world. If I can relate to you and resonate and connect with you at that moment, it is then that healing takes place. It does not take place because I'm going to flip around your chemical imbalance. Hmm. You see, you don't have a chemical imbalance if you're depressed, sad, afraid of things that are worth being depressed, sad, or afraid about. So I began to expand on that a little bit and really start seeing that uh, who I really am is someone who loves humanity for just as they are. 10 years later, and you know, we, there's all sorts of moves and changes and shakes that happen in those 10 years, we began really looking at welcome to humanity as a way of looking at this, basically seeing that welcome to humanity is a way of looking at life and appreciating all pieces of it, including the high, uncomfortable, even miserable, very painful aspects of life as being very much a precious part of life. And if we can embrace the, un, the unembraceable, right? If we can accept the unacceptable, if we can tolerate the intolerable, if we can really see that that's part of life's challenges is to deal with all of that, not to look for it and create it. No, no, no. I'm just saying accept it as an aspect of what it means to be human. Then in that connection, something very beautiful can happen called healing, resonating with another person, connecting with another person. And hence, welcome to humanity has been the umbrella or the thing that I really wake up every day into that I am very proud to be uh, sort of the, mm, the front edge of the welcome to humanity movement. And also therefore the front edge of the true voice movement. There's another one called the global madness movement. And really all I really am now is bringing, is helping people source their own true voice and bringing that into the world. So there's your medium size or long size answer to who am I at? Oh, by the way, I have an, I have the best wife in the entire planet. Uh, you know, we got married a couple of years ago and it was, uh, we've been together for about five years and super awesome to live with Alexander, the most creative and beautiful and truly the most intelligent person I've ever met is my wife. That's pretty cool to be locked. If you're going to be locked down with one human, mm-hmm. it might as well be the best human you've ever met. And that's what I have. And then I got these three cats too, um, who really, that's not even true. They have us, you know, they're, they homeschool us pretty much every day. Um, they are, uh, Desposito, Winston and Valentino and, um, I live a pretty cool life up here in, in Northern California. Yeah, uh, it, it sounds like it. And, and so thank you for breaking that down. That's um, it's been been uh, very informative. There are a couple of things that you said that I kind of want to go back to. Sure. And so first, um, so it, Prozac, it's, it's interesting that yeah. you brought up Prozac. And so um, I went to school at another university, a hat I'm not wearing. 
Um, but while I was in that university, I was I was studying in more of the creative side. I was getting my MFA, and um, I was experiencing a lot of emotions, and a lot of them were not positive. And so I went to the psychiatrist, like the school psychiatrist, and that's the first thing they did was they wrote me a prescription and they said, "Here you go. This will make you feel better," and it did. But I didn't feel anything else. I yeah, just right, felt right. like this, like flat blunt well, yeah, yeah flat we'll call it like flat joy and so i stopped taking it because i was like in order to at that moment in order to be an artist i wanted to feel more yeah, than yeah, just yeah. blah yeah I, so how in your so in in your work how did you start helping people wean off of that because it's mm -hmm. i guess in one way it's it's nice to not feel the bad stuff but at some sure. point you're like i need to feel something more than just like this only if you remember it, you know, you're lucky enough, you hang out with the eco hipster crowd of artists and you get actually get, you know, some access to the fact that there's something to do in life besides being flat. Yeah. A lot of people fall for the idea that I no longer am feeling misery and I could sell off all the rest of life as long as I don't feel misery anymore. Gotcha. Now, the truth is, that's how Prozac works. So, you know, one of the one of the and it's by the way, you didn't get Prozac, whatever you got was sort of a generic product, which isn't even close to Prozac, by the way, it's not, you know, even if it was called fluoxetine, it's not even close to Prozac, Prozac's Prozac. Yeah. And you don't even want to get me talking about generics, by the way, but, if, you know, and because generics suck even worse than the parent product, which already sucks maximally. Okay. Okay, that pretty much covers generics are yeah. so much worse than than the parent products, which is absolutely not worth taking in the first place. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you get that, here's what I the analogy that I think is really important here is there's two of them. If you have a mosquito bite on your elbow, and you, you know, it's just been bothering you for like two or three weeks, it's like, you know, you finally scratch it every time you scratch it gets a little bigger. And then you wake up in the morning, it's itching, and you just can't handle it. And you're just like, you know, it's, a, it's like affecting everything, all your relationships. <laughs> And you finally decide you're going to go to a doctor to deal with the mosquito bite. And you go to a special mosquito bite doctor. And he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, I got I got the answer to the mosquito bites. Like, Good. I found the right doctor. He goes, look, what we're going to do is we're going to cut off your arm at the shoulder. And then we're going to measure you next week. So you walk in there, you're like, and he said, you know, it's only going to hurt for a minute. What You know, he says things like doctors say, right? And And then. You're like, okay, well, if that, you know, you're the specialist here, let's get this done. Mm -hmm. And then if we, if you let him cut off your arm, if you agree to that, that's a good idea. What your whole intention is, is to rid yourself of this mosquito bite. Right. Then when he, you come back for your follow-up in two weeks and he asks you, do you have a mosquito bite on your elbow? Your answer is, as a matter of fact, doctor, I don't. Now you don't have to say that you don't have an elbow anymore. Mm -hmm. But the truth is you don't have an elbow anymore. And if all you're looking at is whether or not that mosquito bite is gone, you can rest assured successful. It has been successfully removed. Right. That sometimes is very similar in the antidepressant world is that we really take away all of your emotions, including the ones that you didn't like. And you might not even notice if you're not looking for what really is what really has occurred. And what really has occurred is uh, without emotions, you know, uh, you won't feel depressed. Now, here's the other thing. It's just a matter of, so when I take people off of medicine, one of the things they get is they get access to how bad they feel too. Mm -hmm. Like there's an opportunity like, oh yeah, life sucks. Yeah, it does.
Oh, oh, life is really, really miserable. Yep, it is. Life fantastic, Dr. Moss. Yep, it absolutely is. It's a total miracle to take another breath in. I love life. Yep. You see, all of those things are completely true. They are not mutually exclusive from each other. And we're all getting a blast of that these days. We all see that life is totally terrifying. It's worth giving up. It does suck. It's what are you even doing? It's you are totally aimless. You have no idea what your next step is or what tomorrow's going to bring. And you never did. Welcome to humanity. <laughs> and so when you start looking at that, you start looking at another piece of this, which is a little bit more disturbing. And that is, you know, these medicines um, often cause the symptoms or at least perpetuate the symptoms that they're marketed to treat. Again, you can't blame the medicine for that. After all, you don't have to put it in your mouth. It's, it's, and the only reason you put it in your mouth is you're pretty certain there's something wrong with you and you need to be fixed. So it's not the medicine's fault, just like it's not rat poison's fault for being rat poison. It's just what you give if you want to kill rats, you know? So these medicines, by definition, not only make you feel better, they also make you feel worse. They give you a load of the symptom that's marketed to treat. So, and that may be in your experience when you went on the generic antidepressant, that on the one hand, yep, I'm a little better. On the other hand, uh, I'm way worse. And, there, and it's sort of true. So the best second visit, and I think any psychiatrist can test to this, the best second visit review, when someone comes back for their second visit, something like this, you know, doc, um, how's it go? Like, uh, I, you know, I think it's something like, you know, the medicines helped, but um, I, I think I need a change in them. You know, there's like this idea that, that, you know, it's, it's sort of worked, but I'm worse, you know, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's sort of true. Like the medicine, sometimes it may be more nefariously, you can say that the medicine sometimes are like a bandaid with a, with a razor blade embedded in it. Right. You know, and it really causes a perpetuation. So that's why now, if you can create a product that actually causes you to um uh that, that that perpetuates the symptoms that it's marketed to treat that's an, a tremendous business model there's not a better business model out there right and and it'll create a multi-billion dollar business if it's let to go a multi-billion you know a great a, a super profitable business well it turns out of course that psychopharmacology is a multi-billion dollar business and people don't get cured they only line up around the block every single day to be the first one in the pharmacy to fill their prescription so they can go home and make sure they never miss a dose while in fact they're getting worse mm -hmm. now for the listeners out there who are like thinking that i'm downplaying their diagnosis or something or downplaying their experience what i really want people to get is i am not downplaying anything your experience is very real. It is very painful to be alive. And in your experience, if you're lonely or you have major loss or you're, you know, your thoughts are running rampant or those kinds of things, those are real experiences. And sometimes those can be perpetuated by the treatment or by the diagnosis you have. 
My interest is in really getting that that is extremely real. It's not like get over it or pull yourself out the bootstraps or take out, you know, put on some rose colored glasses. No, it is about really getting the absolute, you know, uncertain and painful aspects of life as being part of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So along that line, how do you, I mean, so, you know, obviously medicating yourself to not feel things is the the extreme side of this, but how do you, how do you work with your patients then to start to uh, start to work with humanity in the good yeah. and the bad and find the, you know, the, the, the pleasure and the pain to be part of the experience with them? Sure. So one of the things, you know, if all this medicine did was just take away your capacity to feel, and then you can feel later on if you want to, then I might even vote for it sometimes. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, it's got that razor blade embedded in it, and it actually makes things worse. So that's, it doesn't really even do that. This idea of I take medicine to numb my feelings, it doesn't really do that. Mm -hmm. It gives you a sense of numbing your feelings, but life gets worse at the same time. So the thing to do is to really understand or to somehow be with people and represent that all of life is exquisite, including the parts that are unacceptable. Like really starting or at least heading in that direction. Now, again, I don't mean to sound silly about this. I've had plenty of really serious pain in my life. I, this is not about downplaying the pain. This is about accepting the pain, forgiving if possible, having compassion for your own pain and others, and considering that what's really happening here is welcome to humanity. In other words, each and every person that you talk to also experiences some version of what you're going through. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book called The Creative Eight, and The Creative Eight is um, healing through creativity and self-expression. And, and, and basically what I noticed is that when people are creating art, like you said, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, gardening, gardening, it, during those times, all these so-called negative vibration symptoms disappear. So one of the ways to do this is to instruct people whenever possible, even if you feel like just putting a pillow over your head or, or perhaps something worse, um, is to get out there and create, you know, do a little, do, do some singing, do some dancing, do some artwork. And you know, photography and cleaning, cleaning is uh, an intention to alter our environment. Um, also work to do that as creative examples. And ultimately, you know, what you're really talking about here is if you can get that your problems are shared collectively with all of humanity, mm -hmm. um, then being of service is the number one way. I think the, the Trump card, the capacity, whenever you're helping anybody do anything, you're actually upgrading your life. And during those times, I challenge you to keep your same negative experience because when you're helping others, you're not only rewarding yourself, you're, re you're not only rewarding them, but you're rewarding yourself at your heart for your purpose about being on the planet. And I think if I, if I had the one go-to, it'd be, you know, first of all, creativity as a way of managing, you know, watch what you eat, watch what you drink, do, you know, do meditate or sit or yoga, or, you know, take walks in nature. Um, be careful who you surround yourself with. Be careful how you spend your time. You know, careful what TV shows you watch or what movies you go to. Uh, be careful. You know, there's things to do that we all know that can allow us to have access to a healthier lifestyle and, and, and a capacity to have at least a slightly better chance of having a pleasant experience in life. Mm -hmm. 
So there's all that, but ultimately, you know, creating and then helping others, uh, helping others do anything, uh, and then really getting, oh yeah, this miserable experience that I just had or that I'm having right now uh, is sort of like one of the things that's on the smorgasbord table. And I can treat that as part of my grand old hum humanity. And in some ways, even, especially when I'm resting or meditating, I can even thank the universe for at least exposing me to things that otherwise I certainly don't desire. Mm -hmm. So you've also mentioned earlier about finding your authentic voice or, you know, authentic message in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how do you help individuals do that? And what's that yeah. process like? Yeah. Well, here's the process. The process is authentic message. You don't have to find anything. It's right here. This authentic message you have, it's not out there. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go search. You don't have to live. You don't have to move to a cave. You don't have to go to an ashram. You don't have to talk to a guru. You don't have to even study the Bible. You don't have to go to the Bhagavad Gita. You don't have to do any of that, actually. And those are excellent tools, by the way. Those are they're great. The idea is getting that if you can be honest with what your present experience is right this very second and somehow express that effectively right there and then that's your true voice. So you're like, wow, I'm confused. If you really are feeling like you have a question, then ask it. If you really are feeling, you know what your truth is. Mm -hmm. You see, you know, when you're being pretentious, you know, when you're being duplicitous, mm -hmm. you, you do. When you're spitting something out that you know is not consistent with who you are, you know who that is. But there's a prevailing conversation as if, you know, being cool, being hip, saying the right things, being part of the group. You're like, as if you really absolutely believe that through and through in order to stay part of the group. But you know, you're holding back. You know, you're not saying really what's so, including your pain, your discomfort, your misery, your questioning. My request is to at least get in touch with that and express it effectively. Now, what does that look like? True voice isn't always vocality. It can be, as you know, through art, through music, et cetera. There's ways to express self through even silence and listening. What do you do with your time? Who do you be when you're with others? When you're set expressing your true voice, there is some degree of universal resonance when that is. So how am I doing right now? Well, I'd say I'm at uh, 90% maybe 85 to 90% right now. I, Cause I know I'm being Dr. Fred. I know there's listeners out there. Maybe I'm altering the way I say things just slightly mm -hmm. in order to make a point. Uh, and I can be aware of that. So it's being aware of wherever you are in the moment and expressing that because what has happened, uh, Yuri is ever since we were children, we've learned that if we stop being ourselves, there's some advantage to that. Right. And then we learn that if we pretend to be someone else, this is a wild thing, by the way. We all learn that if we pretend to be someone else in order to protect the person that we are, that there's some payoff to that. Like, like you know, if I let my sister get in trouble instead of me, or if I cry in order to get a lollipop, or if I, you know, if I act sad so I can get a hug, I start learning that being someone else is somehow seems to be more simple than being myself or that I'm afraid to be myself. So I actually say things that aren't me in order to protect the person that is me. You don't have to fly very high above that to see how ludicrous that is. Yet mm -hmm. each one of us actually have deep versions of doing that. 
in order to communicate, in order to make sure we don't, we aren't thrown off the island, in order to make sure we aren't canceled or censored or hated or, or abandoned. Um, the closer we can get, you know, to being our own authentic self, that's where magic comes. And to tell you the truth, Yuri, I think that's the only, that's, you know, the biggest threat in the world these days is that we're giving up on our true voice. You know, mm -hmm. the biggest threat is not only that it's being taken away from us in some very obvious places in the world, but also that we're choosing to no longer speak our true voice as if it doesn't matter or there's no room for us or no one will listen anyways, or we don't know what we really mean or, or something like that. When in fact you do, you do know what you mean. You could say what you wanted to say. You don't have to blurt or hurt people, take into consideration the whole thing. But saying our true voice is right here for us because it didn't go anywhere. It's been here since you were born. Mm -hmm. And uh, all you've done is thrown mud on it and muck. And, you know, if you can just uh, dust that off right there is that true voice that you already, you've been walking around with it every second of the day anyway. So, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's very true. I, I'm curious then on how you think about fear through this. Mm -hmm. And so Great. someone to go through this process it's again, whether the fear or not doesn't matter. It feels real to them. So yeah. how do you think about fear and help others to, you know, work with it, dance with it, however you want to phrase it. It's that. a re really great question. So fear is, you know, very real. And I, you know, ultimately I've done some studies on fear and, you know, fear is whether or not it's rational, like you said, doesn't even matter whether or not you can explain what, why you should be afraid doesn't even matter. It's fear. It's fear. And not only is it fear, each one of us, 7.8 billion of us are walking around with a big load of it. Right. And what are we afraid of? Ultimately, what we're afraid of is dying, you know, ultimately some version of dying or being killed or pain, pain and discomfort, you know, on the way out or, or something like that. We don't like those things. And so we really fear that they could happen at any given instant. So we do what we can to avoid those. And sometimes that actually means selling our soul. When you start looking at what's effective to reduce fear, that's where the real question is. So if we're afraid of dying and we can somehow get in uh, good graces with the notion that the only thing in this life that's inevitable is that we're going to die, it seems really crazy, right? To be totally terrified of the only thing in life that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. What maybe all problems in life actually stem from that unbelievable relationship that we are so terrified of the only thing that is certain in life it's a bad that's a bad partnership if we can somehow find a way to get in good graces with what death is with death of others the death of ourselves the inevitable death of ourselves and we wouldn't have to kill ourselves to you know prevent ourselves from dying and that possibility really is available now the other thing about fear you know um, F everything and run or, you know, um, false evidence appears real or those kinds of things. Uh, there, there is a, a way of mm, seeing fear and experiencing fear for what it is and more or less looking when you pretend to be someone that you're not in an effort to protect the person you are, because you're afraid that the person you are will be heartbroken. And then the person that you're not is hated and censored and canceled and abandoned anyways mm -hmm. by the shit that you say that you're pretending not to be you about. You can learn that that's not a very effective way of managing your fear of being hurt. How easy is it to be, you know, 
one of the things I thought of last week, just along the same topic was like, when you start being yourself, what ends up happening is you no longer have choices. Like when you're choosing whether or not to be real or pretentious, you have a choice. You can make up some shit or you can be you. Mm -hmm. At least you have a choice, right? You're like, I can lie or I can be me. But if you actually commit to being you, you don't have very much choices anymore. You just have to actually roll out what's so. It somehow feels constricting <laughs> that you don't get to choose a pretentious lie as being one way to present yourself. Again, if you can get entertained or enchanted about the absurdity of life here and that misery arises from this exact concern, and that it's essentially inescapable, except to sort of describe it, dance around it, join others in dealing with it, look at you know the ludicrous nature of it. Um, from there, there seems to be maybe just a touch, but some touch of freedom, some touch of you know uh, uh, inspiration or a space to breathe in. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's it, you bring that up about being your authentic self or being something, let's say, pretentious or or, or crafted. Um, yeah. Like literally over this weekend for a class that I'm taking, I had to give a presentation. It was a very well crafted presentation, but then with the Q and A, I just I went with my natural answers, which were not the crafted ones. They were very me and very yeah. authentic on that. And that was actually one of the feedback I, I got from one of my classmates was, had you been more salesman like in your feedback, you probably would have won like the pitches, but you were suddenly really honest, which is they're like, it was refreshing, but I think that's where you went wrong. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right, but it's not. not you went deal. wrong by being honest. You mean that's what they yes. were saying? Yes. You I went, I should have stayed, stayed robotic, just stayed robotic and given the polished, correct or the polished answer that would have made things appear true that were not true. That's yeah. so fascinating, right? Yeah. I, 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 here's the thing. In order to sell a bullcrap product or in order to sell something that you need to lie about in order to get there, I, to me, you got to go back to the drawing board and make sure that you want to be aligned with that product at all, right? right? If you actually have to pretend, oh, yeah, this will make you happy, you know, and you, and you're like, you know that it won't, but, you know, you, it's really important for you to get that commission or get the sale. Mm -hmm. um, and then you got to really ask yourself, what, what kind of life are you living, you know, because... I, I see when you speak, this is a great story, Yuri. You know, when, I, when you speak about what happened, your audience isn't going to see you in this particular podcast, but you light up when you talk about the second part of that presentation. <laughs> You're like, dude, I was just me. And it was so, you know, I just like delivered right there from my authentic self and that's it. And then I was given this feedback that I should have not been me. It's like, yeah. that's insane, really. It's so, it's so the ultimate insanity. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like, I have this notion that people are generally way more interested in your authentic voice, voice, even more so than in agreement with them. Mm -hmm. Have you ever listened to somebody who's saying the exact opposite thing of what you think, and yet you respect them because you know, they're coming from their heart. Like you're mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, you can listen to someone who's actually bringing their truth forward. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. But if someone agrees with you and they are just full of crap when they're doing it, like someone agrees with you and you're like, wow, you are just, you are just an automaton. Like you're not, you're not, I wouldn't trust you for an ounce, even though you're agreeing with me, you don't need to be agreed with. You need what we really get turned on by with mm -hmm. another human is their authenticity. And it's even, it trumps the, uh, the whole notion of needing agreement or acceptance actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting.
Interesting. I'm so I'm curious on so on this idea of like authenticity again. I'm also self-conscious just because I went through this experience this last week. Yeah. Um, so COVID has you know um, conformed us to live in these in this well like like we're chatting with right now through screens. Been doing it for two years, and then now we're back with with humans, and I've been able to do that in in through classes and things. And there is. I don't want to say too authentic, but sometimes I just feel like I have developed some bad habits. Maybe that yeah. I don't, maybe a little bit again, too authentic. Yeah. So how are you, how do you um, sure. compare the two and like realize that there is like, there's back with the humans and then there's your world, but like, how are you working with your clients back in a world now where we're coming out of being in our bubbles in that, I mean, physical bubbles? Sure. I, you know, one of the things that's really important, this is allow, allow us to do some uh, distinguishing about what true voice is. So true voice, mm -hmm. I, I mentioned briefly, isn't about blurting out or spitting out that which you've been, you know, you've been holding back or telling someone you hate them because you finally got tired of their junk or, you know, like hurting a system because you know better. It isn't that. Yeah. True voice takes into consideration the entire medium. Like what's, who's really out there? Who's listening to you? What is your actual intention? Are you looking in your true voice to move the needle forward in some way and not just express your regurgitated self, but to actually like move the conversation? Now, when you take into consideration the concerns of other folks in your in your in your world who are there with you, you can be awkward with this. You can be like, oh, I was too open. Um, that person was unable to accept what I the message I was trying to bring. True voice includes that. In other words, you will adjust instantly to be effective in whatever it is you're delivering. So true voice might include silence, proper silence at a given point that actually assists the, the uh, conversation to go forward. Mm -hmm. More than anything, true voice is activated by listening. So when you're listening, truly listening and not just contemplating what the next thing is that you're going to say. Cause most of us, that's what we do. You know, I mean, we're just like, we're listening. Like when this guy is over, uh, I, what am I going to ask him? I got a good question. And you're know, not even really even listening to what the person's saying. Um, when, when we're that, when we're truly listening, we can get a lay of the land. We can get a look at the lay of the land and be able to land more effectively with what we're trying to do to move the needle forward. What is our grander intention? Uh, what is the future that we're trying to create? And from there, our true voice, sort of like a painting, you know, it, it, depending on whether you're in oil or pastels or pencil or whatever you're using, uh, whether you're in canvas or paper or panels, whatever you're using, it's important to know what you're using, right? If you're putting oil on paper, you should know that oil on paper is going to look like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and pastel on canvas is going to look like that. And you get to choose your strokes based on the context of the environment that you're in for which you're painting or which you're communicating. I think it's really important to take into consideration the context, you know, what, what is your general intention? Mm -hmm. If you're sloppy in a crowd, and by the way, you're right, the, the level of divisiveness and a level of choppiness, a level of right, uh, jagged edges that are now created in communication appear to actually have increased over the last couple of years. People are a little bit more prepared to shoot you down or to say silly stuff. And uh, it's more challenging to communicate, but you know what I got to say to that, right? Welcome to humanity. You know? <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. <laughs> so Dr. Fred, with, with everything that you have done and experienced over your years, what would you say has been the best advice that you ever received? Yeah, I think the best advice, well, the one that comes to mind is uh, maybe, you know, I know that I've actually had a, at least a moment or two to contemplate this. Um, there's a couple of them, but the, you know, one of them comes from the Rolling Stones, which is, uh, you know, you can't always get what you want, but if you try some time, you get what you need. There's something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, um, There's the other idea that uh, this is how life looks when it's working. Just like this. This is it. This is it. Mess and all. This is the, the whole thing. Yeah. This is life working just like this. It is. It's kind of silly when you look even past that for a moment to think that life either could be or should be different than it is. Mm -hmm. There's zero chance. There's never been a second in time where life was different than it was. So for us to think that it needs to be different than it is, is an inside problem. Mm -hmm. So the idea of just embracing and getting that this indeed is what life looks like when it is working and always has been that is a great piece of advice and, and something that all of us have trouble with. Cause we're like, you know, my friend uh, Rob just told me yesterday, or maybe it was even this morning, no, yesterday morning, it was like uh, a Buddhist saying that says that um, we are all perfect just like we are, mm -hmm. but we could use a little improvement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I think we'll, th think we'll end on, on that note. So Dr. Fred, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I, I truly appreciate it. If the listeners would like to buy your book, go to your events, um, follow you online and offline, where are the best places they can go to do all of this? Yeah, I think the the um, the summit is my most exciting thing these days. So that's at uh, wethepeoplesummit.online is where you can go and register for the program or or, or actually the donations we're, we're gearing up for raising a million dollars for the Ukrainian people who've been devastated and displaced. Um, and then uh, my book, my more recent book is called Find Your True Voice. I know that's shocking, but uh, findyourtruevoicebook.com. And you can, I, you know, your listeners can get a free copy of that if they're interested in what we've been talking about. So uh, you just go to that website and I'll send you a free copy, find the book, findyourtruevoicebook.com. And then, you know, um, if you want to get a hold of me, it's at Dr. Fred at welcome to humanity.net. And you know, we have all sorts of programs that we're doing. We're doing co coaching and group coaching. We teach people how to podcast. Uh, and there's all sorts of ways to, to come into the community. I have a circle.so community. I don't right this moment have the, uh, uh, the entryway to that. But by the time this show is, is airing, I will. So uh, let's make sure we get that onto the link. And um, that's really where all the action is going to stem from, is from my circle community. Okay. Wonderful. I will make sure that all of those links go into the show notes so our listeners can click right through and, and join your community. That'd be but great. Wonderful. But again, thank you so much, Dr. Fred. This has been truly a pleasure. My pleasure indeed, Yuri. Thank you so much for great questions and a really delightful conversation. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Blackbones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.